Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a family who fled Pancho Villa's army in Mexico and created a frozen burrito empire based in the Central Valley. I've got, you know, sauce all over my T-shirt and I smell like an enchilada. I said, Mom, taste this. And we pay a visit to a tiny San Francisco cookbook store with a big appetite for very old recipes, like this one from 1745. Nutmeg to help digestion, strengthen the brain, heart and stomach, expel wind, resist poison, and sweeten noisome breath. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make the Golden State unique. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state your stories. San Francisco's skyline is undergoing a makeover as builders put the finishing touches on a giant tower that's about to become the second tallest building in the state. Love it or hate it, the Salesforce Tower is scheduled to open early next year. With a unique twist, the top of the tower will be a public work of art that will change minute by minute. Reporter Carrie Spivak explores what it means to make public art that people can't avoid seeing. During the day, cameras installed around San Francisco will record movement. Waves crashing on Ocean Beach, trees blowing in Golden Gate Park, pedestrians crossing Market Street. At night, the images will be projected on the top of Salesforce Tower, like a visual diary of the day, visible up to 50 miles away. 
I join the artist Jim Campbell and his engineers as they head to the roof to test the 11,000 pixels bolted to the top of the building that make his art possible. From the 62nd floor, we climb more stairs and push through a door into the crown of Salesforce Tower. How high up are we right now? Scared. <laughs> yes, I'm scared. Jim Campbell and I are standing on the top of the tallest building in San Francisco at over a thousand feet. Instead of offices enclosed by glass walls, these top six stories are open space, wrapped in aluminum panels with holes the size of airplane windows. We're, we're firing up one panel. We'll see if it smokes. We call it the smoke test. Because wired throughout those panels are pixels that create a 100-foot-tall circular LED screen. But it's not like those sharp, flashy billboards in Times Square. These images will look fuzzy because instead of facing outward, the pixels will reflect light back at the panels to create a soft glow. Campbell says he wants to question what we expect to see in a skyline. It's an interesting uh, public art challenge in that, say, a million people are going to see this at night, whether they want to or not. Aside from folks who don't want to see a movie intruding on an iconic skyline, what will it mean for drivers? And how do you keep it new and interesting? Uh, it's a challenge to have it fit in, have it be subtle, have it be engaging, have it be changing and dynamic. 30 years ago, San Francisco city planners couldn't have imagined LED rooftop art. The planning department's Joshua Switsky says that's when they introduced something called the downtown plan. That plan required that tall buildings taper as they got taller and emphasized more delicate and interesting tops of buildings. To avoid boxy buildings that look like refrigerators, the plan encouraged building tops to be intricate, sculptured, expressive. Architects bristled. Switsky recalls one critic said San Francisco wouldn't need architects, but hat makers. Putting silly hats on tops of buildings, and there certainly are buildings that that's probably a fair representation. But the plan didn't only influence aesthetics. It tried to balance the city's commercial aspirations while retaining San Francisco's charm and civic values. But that's not been the result, says Tim Redmond, a reporter who's been covering housing and development since the 1980s. I meet up with him in Dolores Park in the Mission District with a sweeping view of residential neighborhoods giving way to the downtown skyline. Those giant office buildings, he says, have attracted high-paid workers, raising the cost of living. 30 years ago, there were low-income working-class people living here, and most of them are gone. And that's because of what I see right over their heads. That's because of what I see downtown. The downtown plan requires developers to pay 1% of construction costs for public art, like Jim Campbell's. Redmond says high-rise developers should fund housing in the same way. Still, Redmond supports the fee. It's a wonderful thing. I'm all in favor. I'm glad they're doing it. What is that going to do for the family who's being evicted in the mission because the landlord wants to make more money by renting it out to somebody who works in Salesforce Tower? Salesforce Tower and its public art beacon are about to change the San Francisco skyline as fast as the city it reflects. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Spivak.
You can find them in convenience stores and college dorms, in lots of school cafeterias and family freezers. They're an everyday, quintessentially California food, and they're made in the Central Valley town of Dinuba. That's where we're going to head next for our series, Family Biz. Lisa Morehouse of California Foodways takes us to the heart of a multi-million dollar family business. Recently, I went into a factory, a kind of factory I'd never seen. Before the big wigs let me in, they suit me up in safety gear. Here's company chair Kim Riesbeck. So what are we doing here? We are putting gloves on because we have fingernail polish on our nails. And this? That's a hairnet to cover your hair. Everything has to be completely tucked in. They're so strict about the hairnet that even George W. Bush wasn't let into the factory without one. My dad was like, sure, yeah, President Bush, but he won't wear a hairnet. We're like, are you kidding? All our customers will watch the president on TV at our plant. So what happened? He didn't tour the plant (laughs) because we could not make an exception. All these measures are to protect the product the factory turns out. Oh, it's so many burritos. Burritos! This is one of the plants owned by Ruiz Foods, the largest manufacturers of frozen burritos, in fact, all frozen Mexican food in the country. And this factory, it's like the Willy Wonka of Mexican food. Now, the company won't let me tell you much about what goes on in the factory. It's all a proprietary process. But what I can say is that I see thousands of burritos, quesadillas, and taquitos, most of which will be sold under the El Monterey brand. Over 1,600 people work here, and many fold or roll products by hand. Still, other products are folded incredibly by machine. So what's happening? Well, that's where it goes from tortilla. Oh. Where's the filling? Oh, is this bean and cheese? All headed obediently down what look like miles of conveyor belts toward a spiral freezer. Company co-founder Fred Ruiz tells me the family's originally from Chihuahua, Mexico, but fled during the Mexican Revolution when his father was just a boy. As landowners, the Ruiz family felt targeted. My dad remembers everybody being piled into the car and uh, in the middle of the night, and there was lots of guns and bombs going off. They settled in Los Angeles. Fred Ruiz says his dad, Lewis, was a born entrepreneur, selling feather dusters and then clothing door-to-door. The family moved to Tulare County in the 1950s, when Lewis Ruiz and his brothers started a tortilla business. So I think what my dad realized at that time is that there's an opportunity for to sell Mexican food uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. To learn more, I decided to talk to an expert. I'm Gustavo Arellano. I'm the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. He says the flour tortilla that defines a burrito is a northern Mexican staple. The urban legend is that the first people who created the dish that were now called burritos were miners in Sonora. In copper mines between Sonora, Mexico and Arizona. They would wrap all their food in these big flour tortillas. And ride donkeys or burros down into the mines. So they called these burritos, little burros. He says burritos really entered the U.S. in the 1940s during the Bracero program, when tens of thousands of Mexican temporary agricultural workers came to the country. The American farm owners fed these workers rice and beans wrapped in flour tortillas. Eventually, the burrito entered the mainstream, starting with Taco Bell and Del Taco in the 60s and Chipotle in the 90s. But Mexican food has been in American grocery stores since the 1890s, 
first with canned tamales, beans, chili sauce. Starting in the 1930s, you have a man named George Ashley starts putting tortillas in a can. Not all, but most of these food producers were white. Most of their customers were white people who lived near Mexican-Americans and their food. Once Americans taste Mexican food, they need it, and it becomes a part of their life, and they're going to try to replicate it at home one way or another. And that's the environment in which Luis and Fred Ruiz started their business in the 1960s. They had a primed customer base in the racially diverse Central Valley and the perfect muse, mom. While Fred and his dad developed recipes for their first products, his mom worked at a shoe store in downtown Tulare. I would be working on some sauce, and it just didn't taste right, so I would put it in a little dish, and I'd drive over to the store. And I'm there, I've got, you know, sauce all over my T-shirt, and I smell like an enchilada. I said, Mom, taste this. And she would tell me, well, it just needed a little more oregano, a little more garlic. In fact, the test kitchen is still called Rosie's Culinary Center. Kim Riesbeck says her grandfather served as both delivery man and sales guy. He would drive the truck, pull in, um, deliver all the product in the back of the, the grocery store, and then he would drive around the front and he would change into a suit. And meet with the manager to try to make more sales. Ruiz Foods grew to be a top Latino-owned business, but Fred Ruiz and his dad started the company before major advances in civil rights. There were some challenges, you know, just growing up as a kid, being Mexican, you know, I asked, you know, this girl if she'd gone on a date one time, and she says no, she couldn't because I was Mexican, her dad wouldn't let her date Mexicans, and in business, you know, yeah, you know, there were some challenges that we had to overcome. Some people didn't believe, you know, that we were going to grow our business. But Kim Ruiz-Beck says by the 1980s, a new piece of technology transformed the business, the microwave. Every home has a microwave. I mean, that really is, you know, the key to our product success. Ruiz Foods started growing into the multi-million dollar a year business it is today. For the company to stay on top, the family says they've had to innovate. That's why I give my kids El Monterey breakfast burritos. Adding breakfast items, fusion foods, and something called tornadoes. They're like flautas or taquitos, developed specifically to fit on convenience store roller grills, the ones that usually hold hot dogs. But their number one retail product is still a bag of eight frozen burritos. My whole life, this is all I know. All I know is burritos. Now the chairwoman, Kim Respect, started working at her family's company 40 years ago. This is all I ever wanted. Um, so proud of my dad and my grandpa. I just, you know, wanted to be a part of this business. And, you know, I guess it's not real professional. Sorry. You know, but I love this business. I love what they've created. I love what we do in the community. Through lots of philanthropy. And she says she loves knowing that they're reaching so many people through food. At a town park a mile away, I ask a group of teenagers on skateboards about Ruiz Foods. They've got friends and family who work at the factory and say, though they prefer homemade Mexican food, they eat El Monterey burritos for convenience and the low price tag. An eight-pack of bean and cheese burritos costs under four bucks. Compared to other convenience store fare, a bag of chips is like one seventy nine, and a soda is a dollar, so it's like three bucks. And what's clear, talking to these guys, basically in the shadow of the Ruiz Foods factory, is their products are in a lot of our lives, whether we know it or not. I never tried it. You never ate it. I never ate Ruiz food. Well, 
I know you have because aren't they, aren't, don't they Are package? Blue burritos? Yeah, they package the, the like El Monte burritos, yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh, I like them. I like the green packet. What's in the green packet? Chile verde and the meat and beans. It's the best one. These burritos are everywhere, but their roots are right here in the Central Valley. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Dinuba. As the Me Too movement is creating a space for more people to come forward with stories of sexual harassment and abuse, we've been collecting stories from our listeners for a series we're calling Us Too. This week, we hear from a woman from the Bay Area city of Fremont who's a former Jehovah's Witness. Her name is Georgia Brown, and she says she was excommunicated from the church after she reported being raped by a congregant. We've got to warn you, this story includes explicit details, so keep that in mind if you're listening with kids. My mother was a Jehovah's Witness. She became one when uh, I was two years old. I remember being very involved in the church. I was 110%. Growing up in a congregation, you're always aware that you are seen as a lesser being, that you have a position underneath men. Women have no position of authority in the congregation. When I was 23, I started dating a witness boy, and we'd go out to some dance clubs, and there was a night in particular where I had too much to drink. And then the next thing I remember was waking up when I felt my hymen break, and the pain, and him on me, and I just screamed, because in that second, I knew everything was over. It was done. I had had sex outside of marriage, even though it wasn't my fault. And I was a woman, so any claim I made against it it was going to be my fault. I was drunk. I, I remember I, I pulled pulled my, my dress down and I, I actually I ran out of the house. And he came up and he, he grabbed me and I said, don't touch me. And he starts crying and screaming, I'm sorry. He eventually convinced me to go inside, saying he was going to get help, that he had a problem. But I will say, I ended up forgiving him and holding him while he was crying that night, if you can believe it. Because I knew in my head no one was going to take my side in this I've got to figure this out. It's a common uh, lesson taught, like in the book, uh, the story of Dinah. They, they teach about it in the Bible, about the young girl who was raped by a fella. And the whole thing they teach about that is, well, if she hadn't been there, it wouldn't have happened to her. And that puts women in the position where if they are victimised, they blame themselves. We ended up making the decision to get married. <laughs> I look back now and I'm like, Bloody hell. <laughs> I, nobody in their right mind would do that, but I know for a fact that I was not in my right mind. You're a brainwashed individual. You will make decisions like that. And I know that I'm not the only woman who's been in that position and made that decision. It happens, and it's still happening. And I stayed with him for a year, and the rapes continued. So in this time, I'm thinking, I want to get out of this. I need to go talk to the elders in our congregation. A group of, I think it was four men in their probably mid-60s. And I'm 24 years old, I'm terrified. So I'm trying to explain what has happened and they want me to write out a letter. So I write down what I can to the best of my ability. And so they had a, a, a time where they said, well, if you're saying that your ex did these things, we need to bring him in so we can ask him to his face. And I said, no, don't. I don't, want to, I don't want to do that, forget it. And they said, well, we need to deliberate. So I stepped outside and I went back in the room and they let me know that they were going to 
disfellowship me or excommunicate me for fornication. I don't really remember walking out of the room. I remember understanding that everything I knew, everybody I'd known and loved who was in that congregation, which was basically all of my relatives, everyone I'd grown up with, was now cut off from me. I was, in their eyes, dead. I remember there was a truck coming and I just stepped out into the road and I was ready to just be done. But I'll tell you what was honest to God saved me was those friends that they had warned against, those people in my life that they had said I couldn't be around. And I filed for divorce. My story isn't singular. There's so many women who have gone through the process of being Jehovah's Witnesses, whether they're still in or out, where their stories are so similar. I'm in recovery groups all the time with women telling stories and I'm just like, oh gosh, yeah, me too. Or they'll say that on my comments. When you are a victim, you make a choice. You make a choice and it's either you're going to stay a victim or you're gonna take what happened to you and you're gonna learn from it. You're either gonna help other people not to be in that situation and you're gonna become strong by it because you survived it. And that's what I chose. It was escape from that that gave me my life. That story was produced by KQED's senior editor, Tanya Mosley. The Jehovah's Witness Church hasn't responded to our repeated attempts for comment, but their website says while the church condemns sexual assault, it also puts the onus on the victim to ward off sexual advances. For example, the church instructs women who are in the midst of a rape to scream or put up a fight. Only then is it considered rape in the eyes of the church. It's a chilly December night, and people are huddled inside a tiny bookstore in San Francisco, filled with the smell of chocolate. Platters of fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies and bowls full of chocolate pieces. It's a celebration for the new book, Making Chocolate from Bean to Bar to S'more. This is the kind of thing that happens almost every night at Omnivore Books on Food. They specialize in rare and vintage cookbooks, as well as new books about food. I stopped by during a quieter morning to chat with owner and founder Celia Sack, who started her collection when she was a teenager. I would go into bookstores I loved to collect, and these antiquarian bookshops would have all the old books behind the counter. They would give me a stink eye if I asked to see them. They were very suspicious. You really discouraged collecting. And I wanted to be exactly the opposite. You know, I've got all the antiquarian books are mixed in with the new or at least reachable for people. And I, you know, I'm going to trust my customer to not take the book and throw it across the room. <laughs> I think they're going to be careful. And it gets them to see it. And they're amazed. Oh, my God, this is from 1620. 
and it's, you know, and you're letting me touch it. I don't even feel comfortable touching it. And I'll say, yeah, the, actually the paper was stronger then. What's the value of an actual cookbook that you can hold in your hand versus just looking up the Bon Appetit website recipe? Well, I would say the first thing is you get to make notes in it, all sorts of notes. My wife loves to write the date that she made something, you know, the next date that she made the same thing. My favorite is she'll write, still great, <laughs> like like the recipe would have changed. And it's just much better to have an actual cookbook where you can hold it in your hand. It's It's physical. I think children's books and cookbooks are two books that really need to stay physical to enjoy. And we have enough screen time. Yeah, and I love the splatters. Like, I can mm-hmm. tell what I've actually cooked in a cookbook because, you know, yes. there are little pieces of dough or tomato sauce yeah. or whatever. The pages wrinkle. Well, and you know what? Some of the historical books are really interesting that way. Like, I got Jeremiah Tower's collection. He used to be the, he was one of the first chefs at Chez Panisse and really started California cuisine. So he's very important. And one of his books was The Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. And it had splatters on all the pages he had he had used and you think about him coming up and learning how to cook from that book and splattering it and then becoming this very famous chef in his own right it's fascinating to see that confluence are you a big cook yourself I am I love to cook and this job has certainly gotten me to enjoy it even more because I sort of need to bring home the books and try them out the irony is the more you use cookbooks the less you need to use cookbooks because you really learn how to just sort of riff and cook on your own and one part of a recipe can give you an idea for making up your own next three recipes can we take some down from the shelf and of, crack course, them up? Some of course some of your favorites yeah This one isn't 1600s, it's 1745. It's by M.L. Lemerie, and uh, it's translated into English. It's called A Treatise of All Sorts of Foods, Both Animal and Vegetable, Also of Drinkables. And it's just a basically an encyclopedia of foods, of cabbages, sugar, of cinnamon, nutmeg, and ginger. I mean, think about 1745. These were all so new. It was important for people to know what they were good for. Nutmeg, to help digestion, strengthen the brain, heart and stomach, expel wind, help women terms, Mm. resist poison, and sweeten a noisome breath. That's the amazing thing about these food books. It tells you so much about not just the food, but about what people were thinking and needing then and wanting and learning about. So it really gives you a whole idea about culture. I remember walking by earlier this year and you had a display in the window of books from the countries that President Trump was trying to ban under the travel ban. Tell me about that. How do you use your display window to send a message? Well, that was a particular message. Usually I use the display window to to send the message that Thanksgiving is coming or, you know, things like that. But the, um, the travel ban was so upsetting to me when it, I mean, it's still upsetting to me, but when it first came down, my immediate reaction was to put all in the window all the books from uh, banned countries. So I had a Syrian cookbook, I had uh, Persian cookbooks, I had some African ones. I didn't have a particular one from Somalia, but I, um, or Yemen. I put a note in the window saying uh, the people from these countries are now banned from entering. Learn about them. 
And people were so moved by it, by that small act. You know, I took one photo of it and it was so funny because nobody walked by all day. But online, on Twitter and on Facebook, it was being retweeted thousands and thousands of times. And I was seeing it go around the the different countries because I could see the language changing. It really made me feel good because I felt like, well, I guess it's a small thing. But then a lot of people started ordering those books. And that felt really good because they really did want to learn about them. You know, the Aleppo cookbook became my bestseller that week. And, you know, cooking is something that brings everyone together around the world. And so I, I just feel like it's really important to be soft and, and kind, especially at this, at this juncture. And that was, this is a way of doing it. So what's your favorite thing to cook for the holidays? Oh, God. You know what? I love a pozole. I, I really, really love cooking Mexican food, and there's so many great new Mexican cookbooks, actually, this year. Nopalito has one from our local by Gonzalo Guzman, and then there are two others. There's Ele Mexicano and uh, Guerrilla Tacos, and all three are by Mexican authors, which is uh, kind of a new thing, actually. It was always Rick Bayless and Diana Kennedy. So for me, I love to make a great pozole. Um, it's such a warm, homey meal, and then you get to get all these toppings that everybody gets to put on themselves cilantro radishes avocado queso duro so that's fabulous celia sack is the owner of omnivore books on food in san francisco thanks for letting us stop by oh thanks for coming and that's the california report magazine a production of kqed public radio in san francisco subscribe to our podcast the california report magazine on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts look for the bear wearing earbuds our director this week is nina thorson our technical producer is seal muller with additional engineering from howard gelman and rob spate victoria maulion is our senior editor our team also includes Susie racho bianca taylor David Marks, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Happy holidays. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected on the web at theschmidt.org. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Barracuda Networks, cloud generation firewalls engineered for today's modern, globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com firewalls. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 